and from the beginning of this series, Psalm 127, and verse number 1. Psalm 127. Next Sunday morning, we'll finish the series of messages that we had for this month. And uh, next Sunday morning, it will be on the, uh, I guess you'd say the, Call it either way. You can look at it positively or the negative of it. And you can either look at it from the negative, calling it the, the fracture of the home. Or you can look at it the positive and call it the forever of the home. And we'll talk about that next Sunday morning. I hope you'll be here. And I'll finish up the series of messages that we have for this particular theme. And I hope that uh, you'll be here in your place next Sunday. And we invite guests. And again, we're grateful for friends and guests that are with us this morning. Thank you for being present here at New Life Baptist Church. hope the music has prepared your heart for the preaching of God's Word, and I hope you'll receive it with the same spirit with which it's given. Psalm 127, verse number 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrow, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Though children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. This is the third message in the series, and this particular message deals with the fruition of the home. We've already talked about the formation of the home. We've already talked about the foundation of the home, and now we come to the fruition, or if you want to call it the fruit of it. I've uh, learned some things over the years, and it's not so important what I've learned as what the Bible has always said. The Bible has always been the guidebook to good families, good marital relationships, rearing of children how to have a good, healthy society. The Bible's always had the answer to that. The problem is that most people, most of us, uh, have a hard time submitting ourselves to what God has said. We have this idea that we can probably do it better. We have gone to higher levels of education. We have taken some courses in, uh, in uh, crisis management, so we have a right to run our homes the way we think they ought to run. And so we have this idea that uh, maybe God isn't as smart as we've given credit for being. Maybe I say to you that the scriptures are very clear that if people who have, and some have, by the way, have taken from day one in their relationship with their families the scriptures as the basis of how they were going to lead their homes. And let me tell you something. There's some good, solid families out there. You wouldn't know it from hearing all the garbage that you hear about. But there are some folks out there who have some good, solid families. Christian home to the hilt. And uh, those families are happy and rejoicing in the Lord and the children are have been reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and are out serving the Lord to this day. And so let me tell you, not everything has gone right. And not everything has gone wrong. A lot of families have found that the Lord is faithful, His Word is true, and when they adhere to it, God blesses it. So let me bring those words of encouragement to you that if you'll do what God says, your family can be right too. If you're here today and maybe a husband and his wife are not uh, things may not be going so well with you and your relationship may be a little bit rough-edged. Uh, let me tell you something. that I, I believe that the Scriptures are very clear. If we will humble ourselves before the Lord and submitting ourselves one to another in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I don't believe there's any marriage that cannot be fully and completely restored and made right. And, uh, and let me urge you and exhort you in that uh, you take very uh, much into heart uh, uh, the fact that your relationship with your spouse is a precious part of your life. And let me urge upon you not to take the, the world's viewpoints and the world's perceptions of this and uh, these throwaway marriages that we've heard so much about. Let me urge you to uh, do what's right and, and draw a line in the sand and say if there's a problem, then we'll solve the problem. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to deal with it and we'll move on with our relationship. And I urge then also as you listen to this message today, some of the things I'll say to you will will maybe hurt you, and they hurt me as I studied the text and studied the passage, and uh, some things that I needed to learn afresh and be reminded of. And it may be with you the same way, but nobody ever said this thing would be easy. The whole idea is that the Scriptures say that this is just the way it has to be done in order for us to get the desired fruit. And so sometimes there is a pain to be paid, a price to be paid. And I hope that you'll be patient in receiving of that. First off, in Psalm 127... Let's look at the fruition of the home. In uh, verse number 3, the writer says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. First off, this passage of Scripture, and if you write in your Bible as, as I do to make myself notes so I can remember things, you ought to write near this verse, desirability. Verse number 3 really talks in, in terms of the Scriptures and teaching us and from the Scriptures' perspective that, that God says that children are desirable. There, in the word I've used here, is desirability of them. That uh, children are desirable. Now, I, I know it, and you know it, that it is not God's will that every couple have children. Uh, that's not God's will. And, and I'm not about to stand up here and tell you that it is. Uh, it is not. Uh, there are many a couple who I know full well that uh, the Lord has been gracious in uh, giving them ministry and opportunity and, and a usefulness and a service where I could never serve. Simply because in responsibilities to my family and my children, it would just never work. So I submit to you that just as surely as it is not God's will that every person be married, it is also certainly, certainly true that it is not God's will that every family have children. Then I am also equally assured that if you do have children, you will answer to God how you reared them. So if you got them, you just made yourself an appointment between you and God on what you're going to do with them. So your name appears on the log somewhere that you're going to have to give an, ex explaining, an explanatory note, an accountability of what you did with what He gave to you. Because God is not in the business, never has been and never will be, of just giving out things or, or privileges or benefits or blessings without holding you accountable for what He gives to you. So everything He gives us, He will someday require an accounting of. He give you a gift, you'll have to account for how you use that gift. You have a talent, you'll have to account for how you use the talent. He gave you children, you're going to have to give an accounting of how you trained your children. So everything God gives, He holds up and says, you have an appointment with me to explain what you did with them. This passage of Scripture, there are two words that you probably write down as key words. We'll not elaborate on both of them, but only on one for sake of time. But the word heritage and the word reward. The word heritage in this basic meaning here is simply, in Hebrew, means possession or property. That seems very generic and it seems almost... Uh, 
uh, intangibles, unloving, to use it in terms of property or possession. But what's interesting is the verse is, is actually telling us that uh, God says about children that children are a heritage. They are a, a possession of the Lord. That they literally, in, a, in our case here, looks at it as God's possession. But when you look at the, what's called in this sense the verb form of this word, if you took this verb form of the word heritage, if you were to find that carrying it one step further than it is here, the word in the verb form in Hebrew means assignment. And uh, that's, uh, many people read it into the text, and, and I don't think it violates the text to do that. It simply is to tell you and me that first off, while the woman cares a child for nine months, God is doing the developing for nine months. God's developing this child in physical and in a, in a social, and I guess you'd say in a, in a emotional sense. And when this child is born after nine months, then in essence, the Lord takes that child from this mother who's carried it for him, by the way. Just like the virgin birth, Mary carried the Lord Jesus Christ. That was God's vehicle to get the Lord Jesus Christ here. This verse of Scripture is saying a mother is God's vehicle to deliver the assignment to each resident home. That's his idea. That's the point he's making. And so God develops this child in the womb for nine months, and then at the end of nine months, God takes this child as if it were and carries it over to this mom and dad and says, okay, this is your assignment until this child leaves your residence. And you'll give an account for how you train this child and what you instill in this child because what this child gets while this child is under your roof will dictate how this child will live the rest of its life. And so I'm holding you responsible for this child and someday you'll get to look upon the fruit of your life and see how well you did and what kind of job you did by simply looking at your children. And, and by the way, we say our children. This word heritage does not allow for that technically. We call them our children because the mother carries them and the father and the mother together, together have this ideal conception and then the mother carries it, then the mother gives birth and then the mother and the father carry the baby home and then the mother gets up every night with the baby and feeds it and the husband changes one or two diapers during his lifetime and beyond that, that's... Well, for some of you men, change four, then okay, give me a break. Whatever, the point made is that, that, that we said they are our children. Let me say, this verse doesn't allow for that. This says this possessions was God's. He turned it over to this mother to carry it. And then when this mother delivered it, God turned around and gave the whole case, so to speak, to the mother and the father and said, this baby, this child is, is mine and I'm turning it over to you for a, a lifetime. And I want you to train this child right and, and help this child to develop the way it should. And I just don't want you to ever forget this. This is my child. That's what the word heritage is saying. We technically are wrong when we say these are our children. No, 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 no. The scriptures don't allow for that. It's simply saying God says they're all mine. These are mine. I've given them to you to train. And that's where the word assignment comes in. You and I sometimes miss this point. Our children were given to us with a divine design far and away beyond anything you or I could comprehend. God's saying there's something in your life that your children will help you work on if you have them. If God gave you children, and sometimes you may look at them and, boy, they just, boy, just try you to know it. Let me tell you something. The very idea of what you're saying is the very thing for God, no doubt, with, with God, no doubt why he gave you that child. You needed the very thing that this child can supply in your life, and God is saying, that's your assignment. That's your assignment. How many parents have laid awake at night as the children grow up into the teenage years and have cried and wept before the Lord and says, oh, God, why did this child go wrong? 
And the whole idea is that God all along was saying, well, it was your assignment from day one. And what happened is you let this assignment get out of hand. You let it go too far. You didn't deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. You thought you'd just stop out here, and in a few years you'd jump back in and deal with the situation, and a few years later you'd deal with a child, and a few years later you'd deal with and in the end everything would work out hunky-dory. That's not the way assignments work. They have to be done consistently. And that's the word that he uses in verse number 3, for children are a heritage unto the Lord. By the way, with this idea that children are desirable, let me remind you something, that there is growing interest in our country that that children are not a favorite thing of a lot of people. For instance, I can tell you that children have no friend in the feminist movement. And uh, <laughs> the feminists have no friend in me either. But the truth of the matter is that this whole idea, I read a few days ago about a feminist who wrote in a book called Radical Feminism. If you haven't read it, don't bother. It's a waste of time, print, ink, paper, and a publisher's money. But the fact is, it says some amazing things. And I mean some amazing things. For instance, in this particular uh, book, this lady said, Feminists teach, and she admits, not all, but many, that lesbianism is the logical lifestyle to take on because relationships with other women would eliminate two major problems in our society. One, the need to be submitted to aggressive men. Two, it would eliminate children who by and large get in a feminist way. It's amazing because these feminists were once children. They can certainly be grateful that their mothers didn't have the same attitude. Eh? The lady by the name of Sheila Cronin wrote in a book also labeled as a radical perception of feminism, freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of all marriages was my communist manifesto that Karl Marx wrote up. He said within that, and he preached it loud and clear, that the consequences of capitalism was the fact that families would be multiplied. The more people got out into a position where they worked and they brought home money and they could afford things, they'd build houses, they would have children, their children would grow up and they'd go out, they'd get jobs, they'd establish relationships, they'd have families. Karl Marx says that capitalism produced families. So his idea was that we we're going to stop that, we we're going to squish that. So he and Lenin and all their preaching all got together with this idea. What we're going to do is we're going to push as much as we can the women out of the home into the workforce. So communism required that the women contribute to the success of the state by working. So Lenin wrote within, in fact, uh, Karl Marx wrote within almost all their communist manifestos the very idea that all women would have to work and support to some degree the interests of the state. As women become, they said, involved in the workforce, their children must be reared by the state itself. They wrote that. In a book that feminists have written, Radical Feminism, on page 375 and 376, I found this, quote, Child-rearing, she says, to the extent to which it is necessary is the responsibility of all. Children are part of society, but they should not be possessed by anyone. Marriage and the family must be eliminated. Now, let me say this to you. You say, well, that's far off over in New York somewhere. No, the truth is that this concept is being promoted right here in the city of Indianapolis. Not too long ago, there was a feminist who came through and worked very hard on getting a state 
program, state-infested idea of 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week child care for all children of working mothers. With an inclusion based on the idea that mothers didn't have any time to themselves, that they would actually take the children all the time for the summer months. There was only one catch. That is that there were no restrictions on what they were taught. Now let me tell you something. I don't know of anything that's so raping the system that God set up for a family as is what's happening today. This whole idea is taking and stripping the Word of God of all the credence of how that God ordained that we have our children, that we train them, we rear them, and then we say, Lord, these are your children, we're training them for you, and we, when we train them as best we can under the auspices of your Word and in the church and, and under Christian families' dominance and encouragement, then we let them go on their own and they go out and multiply and they do the same thing over again with a fine Christian home. So, well, I thought that's the way it was, and I honestly thought that's the way it had been, but... I picked up a copy a few days ago of a, of a letter that was written to Ann Landers. This is an older letter. It was written a few years ago. She simply reprinted it. Here's what it says. Quote, Dear Ann Landers, I have lived 70 years. Now, this lady is not a modern-day feminist. I have lived 70 years, and I speak from, speak from experience as my mother of five. Was it worth it? No, absolutely not. The early years were difficult. Illness, rebellion, lack of motivation, laziness. One was seriously disturbed in and out of a mental hospital. Another went to gay lib route. Two are now being uh, are living in a commune. We never hear from them. Another has gone loony with the help of a, a phony religious leader who should be in jail himself. Not one of our children has given us any pleasure at all. God knows we did our best, but we were failures as parents, and they are now failures as people. Sign, sad story. Isn't that sad? Isn't it sad that a woman here in her 70s has five children and is saying, I'm telling you, I didn't have a moment's pleasure with my children. They were nothing but a pain in the neck and a problem. If I'd have read this verse of Scripture, Psalm 127, verse number 3, children are a heritage to the Lord. And that lady, she'd have probably spit. But let me tell you something. Something messed up, not in what God said, but in what this woman appropriated. And let me tell you something. If... Is, is a fact that you didn't enjoy your children or you are not enjoying your children, it's probably the same problem that you're facing also. You see, I believe that in the assignment God gives us of our children and in the training process, that I believe there's great joy and great pleasure to be had. When I was growing up in my mom and dad's home, and if they were to get this tape and listen to this, I'm quite confident they'd tell you the same thing. There were times when I'm sure my dad uh, I thought I was a pain in the neck. You know, I was the kind of kid that asked every kind of question. I mean, you name it, I asked him. Why does a mosquito have six legs? Why does he have two wings? Why has he got this thing coming out of his nose? Why does a bee sting? Why, do, why does a bumblebee buzz? What? Every time there was something, I had a question. What about this? And what about that? And what about this? And, and my dad, I can remember on more than one equation, turned to me slowly. And we just I could tell he was about to... just. Oh, he was going to hit me, you know, because he couldn't even think. He was measuring, you know, if you've got a tape measure laying something and you're measuring and you're somebody's asking you a question, you know, then I'd ask him what the big mark is. And then five minutes later, what's that little mark right there? What's this number over here? What's that number here? Why are you, why are you measuring this way? Why don't we measure it that way? And he'd say, just go over and wait a minute. I'll go over and take something. Take that hammer over and beat on something. I'd go over and be beating on something and it'd drive him nuts. Here he'd come. Oh, just, and I know there are times when I'm sure... I, he thought I was going to drive him crazy. But he would tell you this to this very day. He'd get through at the end of the day and he looked back on that. 
And he would say, boy, what a joy it was to even have a son who'd be out there wanting to be around his father. And he'd often come tell me, he said, I enjoyed you being out there today. And I know I wasn't as patient with you as I should have been. And I know that I wasn't as, as, as eager for you to help me as, as I should have been. And I know that. Uh, I just want you to know that I love you. And I'm glad you want to be with me. And I don't care how many times I get bugged by what you do. You know, I want you with me. And let me tell you, I went with him everywhere. And when he got to work, he went off to work one day and started working in a factory. Now, by the way, as long as he logged in the woods, I went with him. I was with my dad every day in the summer. Every day in the log woods. I love the woods to this day. I'm sure for that very reason. He went off to a factory job and I couldn't go with him. And so I started hanging around my big brother. And boy, did he love that. <laughs> when are you going to grow up? Can't you go somewhere else and play? Everywhere he went, I went. Even one Sunday night, we had a revival at our church. And after service was over, I was tired. I crawled up in my brother's car back seat, laid down, went to sleep. After a little while, I heard both doors open. I heard him shut the one. Some girl slid in one side. I heard him go around, slide in the other side. I heard the engine start, and I heard him say, move over here. And I said to myself, keep your mouth shut and your eyes closed. And may I say to you, the next 30 minutes was the most exciting and unique experience for a young brother. And he didn't know I was in the back seat until he got to where he was going. And the young lady by the name of Kay, he opened the door and started to get out. And as he did, he looked over in the back seat and he was so embarrassed, he never said a word. He just took Kay to the door. That good night, he came back to the car. He got in, he shut the door. He looked over and I looked up. He never said a word until he got out of earshot. And then he began to say things to me that I never thought older brothers would ever say to younger brothers. <laughs> so he said from that day then he went back to my father and he asked dad if I couldn't go to work with him at the factory. And surely you can find something for him to do. And it just became a thing that I understood that I was sort of a fifth wheel. I was young and interested in everything and I knew that. But let me tell you something. I never for one second doubted that I was loved by my father and I was constantly aware of the fact that, that even though, and I'm sure every father at one point has, come to not appreciate the children the way they should, I never for a second thought that my father didn't love me supremely. Let me tell you something. I think that a child can put up with a lot of stuff as long as he knows he's loved. And, and I say to you, and this is very important, that the number one killer in this country of children under the age of five is not crib death. The number one killer in this country under the age of five is, is not leukemia. Uh, the number one killer in this country under the uh, age of five is not uh, accidental deaths, not accidents. The number one killer in this country of children under the age of five is child abuse. That tells you that somebody is messing up on this thing of loving somebody. I mean, it's one thing to get frustrated and irritated at something somebody does, but getting to the point where you actually do bodily harm to someone... That's another matter altogether. And most of this happens. Police reports will bear it out. Most of it happens because for just a moment, there's the rage and the indifference of this person being invading in this person's life. And some parents just can't handle it. Let me note something else in Psalm 127. Look at verses 4 and 5. Contrary to what this society says, children are desirable. But look verse number 4 and verse 5. Psalm 127 verse 4. As arrows are in the hand of the mighty man, so are children of the youth. And verse number 5. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Not only are children desirable, but this verse of Scripture says they also carry responsibility. 
So I have beside this when I write the word responsibility. It's one thing for the desirability, but it's also responsibility. And if you don't get this right, then after a while the desirability will rub off. It'll wear out. Because if you don't understand that these children were given to you as a responsibility before the Lord, then you'll miss a good and enjoyable part of life. Now listen, this is no accident that he uses the analogy of an arrow. And I don't know if you've ever done it or not, but uh, I, I used to like to shoot bow and arrow. You know, I used to go to the archery range and, and draw that thing back. And one thing I learned early on, I had this uh, bow that was rather cheap. And uh, I remember the first time somebody just said, hey, try to shoot that bell out there, you know, and they handed me an arrow. And I flipped that thing back up here like so, and this was about a 65-pound pull. And here I was just a small kid. I got that arrow pulled up there, and you might know what happened. I didn't look at the length of that crazy arrow before I got it up there, and I got that arrow hung, you know, up against your face and into the bow, and I couldn't get it any further to get it back out. And here I'm standing here with a 65-pound bow stuck and hung, and I'm afraid the thing's going to flip out and put an eye out. And everybody's saying, don't move, just hold on, just hold on. Scared me to death. First lesson, the guy said, you know, he said, I just gave you that to teach you a very valuable lesson. Before you ever shoot an arrow, before you ever pick it up to shoot it, you need to look at it to make sure it's going to work lengthwise. He said, always examine your arrows before you ever place them in sight to shoot. Now, let me tell you something. That's no accident that he uses the arrow here because the first thing he says, you need to get to know your kids before you even start training them. You mean you've got to get to know them before you start training them. And there are some people that go right in on day one and start training and yet don't know their children. I mean, let's show you a verse. You're familiar with it, but I want you to look at it carefully. Look at Proverbs chapter number 22. You've heard the verse and you've heard it quoted and you've probably quoted it and you've probably read it in a hundred places. Proverbs 22 and verse number 6. It's that famous verse that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22 and 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The Hebrew term for the word train up here is derived from a word that means pallet. And for the Hebrews, it actually carried two meanings. Number one, it described the area in the mouth where if you were going to break a horse, you would lay the rope, and if you used a bit, you would lay the bit right in his mouth. And, and it had a what we call an upper swing, which went up into the upper part of his mouth, the palate of his mouth, because then it hurt when you would pull down. If you pull down or if you pulled up, you could stop him. You could, you could get his attention just like this. If this spirited uh, young horse was not going to give ground, you just pull that thing up. And when that bit pulled up in the palate of his mouth, he stopped in a hurry. It was a, it was a device to help train and break young horses. That's the first use of the word. The second one was, is when a midwife went into a Hebrew home and a child was delivered, the midwife would very quickly go over into some mashed, crushed grapes or dates and put her index finger down in there and then take that and put it on the roof of the newborn baby's mouth, the palate. The idea was to give a baby a desire of a, of a substance that it was going to be fed for the rest of its life. There would be no such thing as this baby growing up to hate dates and grapes because these were a major uh, portion of the food. And so if you didn't like that, you were hurting for certain. So the first day, the first hour, the first moments after birth, they would go in and simply get that and rub it very gently on the palate. did two things. One, it gave them a sense of the right kind of food to which they would be introduced. It gave them the right taste. 
your children you introduce to the kind of things they taste for the first time. The kind of music your children like. Somewhere along the line, you either allowed or you introduced them to it. The kind of things they enjoy as social functions, you introduced them to it. So this idea was to introduce them to the right taste, to get them that. And it also created a desire to suck. And so then the child was able to nurse without any complications. It literally got them started right. And so that's the word in the Hebrew that's used here for the word train up. It literally carries that idea. And in some cases we think with our children to get them going the right direction, we literally have to put a bit in their mouth to get them to go that way. Sometimes that's true, but the point made often is they just need to see a good example. I've worked around enough horses. There are many horses that are a little tougher than others. But at the same time, there's some, they just need to know which way you want them to go. They don't understand which way you want me to go. Some children are in the same way. There's a second thing to be noted. It says, in the way he should go. Interesting text in Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Interesting that if you were to go to an interlinear Hebrew, and you looked at this verse of Scripture, as we call it, and refer to it as literal interpretation, here's what you read. Train up a child in the mouth of his way, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Little translation has it, his way. It's saying very simply, and I'm convinced of it, that we often, I believe, misunderstand the verse and often misinterpret it. This passage of Scripture is not saying mom and dad have this ideal of what they do every day of the week and how they run their life, how they run their home, and how they run every child that's born into the home. And so therefore, when this newborn baby is born into this home, these parents say, well, we already have this ideal. Here's how we're going to rear this child, and this child's going to do it this way. That's not what Proverbs 22.6 says. What Proverbs 22.6 says is every child born in your home and your family has his own bend about him. Every child is different. Every person is different. And this verse of Scripture is saying that what you're to do is first off, you've got to get to know this child. Get to know this child. Get to know this child's bent. And then you deal with this child and train this child according to his bent. That's really what Proverbs chapter 22 is talking about. You say, well, I'm not so sure I, I can understand. Let me show you that the Bible itself proves that very point. The same word now that's used in Proverbs chapter 22. Skip over to Proverbs chapter 30. And let me show you where the same Hebrew word is used. And you can't deny the text. In Proverbs chapter 30, look at verse number 18 and 19. Proverbs chapter, thir chapter 30 and look at verse number 18. Proverbs 30 and 18. Here's what it says. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. Number one, the way. That's the same Hebrew word that's used over in Proverbs 22, 6. The way of an eagle in the air. The second word, the same. The way, same Hebrew word, of a serpent upon a rock. And the way of a ship in the midst of the sea. And the way of a man with a maid. Now, now let me just prove to you beyond any question that the way back over in Proverbs 22, 6 is not a dead set, hard fast, cement direction. If I would ask you, how did you date your present wife who was then a boyfriend, girlfriend kind of relationship? If I said to you, uh, did you take them out on a date? Did you take them to, uh, let's say, the roller rink? Uh, how many of you, when you were dating, went to the roller rink? I mean, did you, as a date, you ever went to the roller rink? Oh, sure. Some of you, I, either a bunch of liars or something going on here. 
few of you, okay? How many of you went to a park? You knew there was a park in you and you loved to go to the park, so you took your date to the park. Okay, see, some of you. How, how many of you said, no, sir, buddy, we went fishing? Anybody like it? Come on, be honest now. Oh, yeah, there's some of you. We went fishing, absolutely. Now, and, and how many of you said, no, my husband didn't like fishing, he didn't like a roller rink, didn't like a park, he liked to hunt, but we went hunting. I mean, that's right, Judy, Judy and I, I took my wife hunting. It's the most unbelievable thing. We like to get carried away with mosquitoes, but nonetheless, we went hunting. It was an experience. But anyway, you see, none of us necessarily did the same thing while we was dating, did we? See what this verse is saying? It's all these ways are different. They're not all wrong. They're just all different. The way of a serpent on a rock is not the way of a man with a mate, I'll assure you. Uh, the way of an eagle up in the air is not the way a ship sails through the sea. Not at all. These are all distinctively different ways and means. What it's saying is, you could translate the word way for the word characteristic. Every one of these have a different characteristic about it. A way something was done. A way it was carried out. The fact is, the serpent is not like a ship. And a ship is not like a maiden and a man. And none of those are like the eagle in the air. They're all different. Let me tell you, there's not a kid on the earth that is like any other kid. God says, what I want you to understand is that every child is different and every one of them have a different way. And I want you to learn his way or her way. And I want you to train this child in the way he should go. I don't mean to give in to his every wish and whim. That's not the ideal at all. It's simply to say that he has a bend about him. You say, well, now that's a new word. Pastor, you're using another word. No, no, it's the same word in your King James Bible. Look at Psalm chapter number 7. Look at verse number 12. The same Hebrew word is used right here. And he uses the word bend. He doesn't use the word way. He uses the word bent, B-E-N-T. Look at chapter 7, Psalm chapter 7. Look at verse number 12. Psalm 7, verse 12. It says, if he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent. There's the same word in Hebrew that's translated in Proverbs 22, 6 and Proverbs 30, verse number 19 in the word way. Here, he uses the same Hebrew word, but he changes it. He makes it now the word bent. I'm simply telling you that your children all have a bent. I had a bent. Boy, did I have a bent. Now, there's a bent towards sin. And we all know about that. We have a bent inside of us that heads towards sin and, and wants to do that which is wrong because it satisfies our self-centeredness. But the Bible is saying, now look, what you need to do is look at this child and get to know this child. And once you've gotten to know this child... Then what you can do, you can help him get from where he is or where she is to where she ought to be. You'll get to see her bend and you'll know how to work with her. You don't work with all children the same way. If you try to work with all children the same way, you're going to make a mess and in a hurry. Now, let me. what amazes me is that we have a Bible that says this. And at the same time, some pagans understand it better than we do. Let me read you some. I thought about reading this next Sunday morning for baby dedication, and I thought, no, this will offend some parents. But let me read this to you. And while I'm reading it to you, you remember this. We have been somewhat misled. You've read these books, Your Child is Wet Cement. Uh, I don't know many children that are wet cement. I know children that come out with an ideal of their own, a, a direction they're heading, and you either got to work with a will and break that will into what it ought to be. I don't see it wet cement. And I'm not saying I argue with the guy who wrote the book, but I'm telling you, I don't see it soft clay either. But I see it as a human being with a will and a soul and a spirit, and you've got to take biblical approaches to get that child to where they are to where they ought to be. Here's what I was thinking about reading next week, and I changed my mind. 
This came out of the Minnesota Crime Commission report. Quote, Every baby starts a life as a savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny these and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to his impulses and his impulsive actions, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. You see, if you can't get a grip on that, then it probably is a good indication you still haven't got a grip on what the Bible says about a child. Because you see, a child is, is every one of us are born in sin. And you have to get a grip on that. Every person is born in sin. There's no doubt about it that kids in this country make that easy to believe. You go to Indianapolis, Detroit, Chicago, New York, you go to any of it and you see kids on the street, 8, 10, 11, 12, 14 years of age doing things that you could not even dream about at night after you've seen the most horrible flick you've ever lived in your life seen. You couldn't believe some of the things. that It wouldn't be hard to understand it. People are born sinners. Even from the youngest, we see it coming out. Years and years ago, Duke Wellington, a man came over from England, and here's what he said. He said, quote, The things that impresses me most about America is the way that parents obey their children here. Uh, you know, I thought about that. I, I think that would be funny if it were not for the fact it's all too often too true. Children in this country have learned a very valuable lesson. They've learned exactly how to deal with their parents. While all the time the Bible is saying, I want parents to learn how to deal with their children. I, the children are an assignment. Ch children are a heritage of the Lord. Children have a certain bent about them. And God's saying in heaven, I want you to learn that bent. And I want you to work on that bent and get that thing right. Because if you leave that child to his own bent, when he grows old, he's going to be a pain in the neck. You're going to lose a lot of sleep and a lot of tears over that child. And so God's saying, I don't want that to happen. And there's a simple solution to keep it from happening. Now follow my directions, he says. In closing, let me refer to a man that is not a believer. But who, even himself, as a pagan, seems to practice more of God's word than fundamental Bible-believing Christian parents. His name is John Rosemont. He writes for, the, for, I believe, the Indianapolis Star. I think you'll see some of Rosemont's work there. He wrote a book it was entitled Six Points, Six Point Plan for Raising, and he should probably say Rearing, Happy, Healthy Children. The book was published in 1989, I believe. Now listen to what he said, six things, and he talks about them as six myths. I'll run by them quickly so we won't elaborate so for time's sake, but listen carefully. Number one, myth number one, children should come first. I could not begin to tell you how many families, husbands, wives, I've had to counsel. When a child came on the scene, that one or the other got very jealous. I don't have to point you any further than the local case of the young Shaw girl who had a child who her husband, she thought, was paying more attention to than herself. And so what did she do? She is allegedly accused of setting a fire in her own home to get rid of the child. Now let me tell you something. 
God knew what he was doing when he had husband and wife come together first and establish a good solid relationship and then children come later. He was not goofing off. He knew exactly what he was doing. And yet there's this idea that in some marriages, and it's been seemingly, and I think Rosemont makes mention of this since about World War II, that children have had a preeminent position in the home. It's almost as if the whole home focuses upon and the whole home centers around what the children's schedules are. In a test case they did in a survey, it was a, on a weekly scale, 79% of what the parents did in a home of three or more children centers around the children's schedule. Something's wrong in America when that happens. When our children's schedules dictate our having to say, we don't have time to pray. We don't have time to go to church on Wednesday night. We don't have time to, to do these other things we ought to do. If that's your case, my friend, then it may well be you need to get your alignment squared. And then there's another thing. Rosemont makes this point, and you ought never forget this. If you have small children, you ought to write this down and memorize it. Quote, The more child-centered the family has become, the more self-centered our children become. And that's right. The more child-centered you make your home, the more self-centered no and most likely your child is going to become. Because after all, if we treat these folks as if they're the only things in the world and we just gloat and wonder over them and every move they make, we're just watching and we're just... If we make that our life and we don't teach them that what you're here for is I'm your father, this is your mother, and our responsibility is to help you to become what you ought to be so that you can go out and have a successful Christian home of your own. And, and that's what we're here for. We're to help you get there. Now, it may not be pleasant at times and you'll not always agree with us, but... I think what Pastor Sam Harvin said last night, the guy with the axe necks or closest to the neck, his vote counts a little more. Let me tell you something. That certainly works in the family. And mom and dad are going to have to stand accountable for their children someday. They're going to have the axe at their neck so they have an extra vote in this matter of what we do and what we don't do. Now, let me tell you something. There ought to be love in that home. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not taking away from that from one iota. You love your children. Every child ought to know that it's loved. It ought not ever have a doubt about that. But let me tell you something. In fact, a home without love is just a, a piece of cold real estate. That's all it is. But if we love our children and treat them and train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, they'll grow up to be the kind of Christian people that this country needs. Number two myth is that a family is a democracy. A family is not a democracy. God did not say that everybody has an equal vote. You say when parents plead and bargain and bribe and threaten and give second chances to, to children, then the ideal is that they're wishing their children would obey, not expecting them to. And it's, it's important, Rosemont says, that our children know we expect them to obey. We expect them to obey. You see, I find this to be true, and Rosemont makes mention of it in his book, and this is good. When we come to a situation, when a parent makes a decision about a matter, and a child says, why? First off, let me tell you that that word is not a question in Rosemont's perspective. Rosemont says, no, why is not a question. It is an invitation to a small war. And by accepting the invitation, you're in a no-win situation. And he makes this point, and this is good. Because a child will never see a parent's point of view until that child becomes a parent with a viewpoint. And that's right. You can reason till you turn blue in the face. 
And your child just keep asking why and why and why. And you'll get more frustrated with every attempt to answer that question. It's not a question. It's an invitation to a war. Because our children need to learn that when we make a decision as a parent in a home, it is made for their good as well as ours. It's for everybody's good. Trust me. And going about your business. If you sit there and begin to explain and you get yourself caught up in this quicksand of problem, next thing you know, you're going to get frustrated and probably end up getting angry at the child. He says there's a third myth. Housework is for parents. Let me tell you something. When I was growing up, my parents required of me certain household chores. My two sisters worked inside. My brother and I worked outside. And we did work every single day at our home. Rosemont makes this statement. In just one generation, we have managed to misplace an important tenet of child rearing. That is that children should be contributors as members of a family. And they should. I won't even tell you what Rosemont, as a pagan, believes your children ought to do to contribute to your home. Because some of you would absolutely be disgusted that a pagan would say such a thing. He requires of his children certain hours of work per week for their home and certain hours on every Saturday. No ifs and buts. This is the way it is. I might add to you, his children are very successful. Commendation from a lot of people about his children. I remind you, he's a pagan though. But it just proves to you, if you follow God's guidelines and directives, even a pagan can turn out some good, decent kids. Now they won't go to heaven. They can be decent. We've got this idea that, oh, because our kids are saved and, and in a Christian home, they're just go, everything's going to work out hunky-dory. Not unless you apply God's principles, they won't. And that's what Rosemont contends. There's a fourth myth, and that is that frustration is bad for a child. I'm not so sure I come along with Rosemont on that, but the fact is that's one of his myths. And his ideal is that too many parents are walking like they're walking on eggshells around their children, afraid they'll frustrate them and they'll hurt their psyche, and, and the child will be warped for the rest of his life. His exact statement is, give your child a regular dose of vitamin N. That's no. This vital nutrient is the most character-building two-letter word in the whole of the English language for a child. Myth number five, the more toys kids have, the better they'll be. And he says, a typical child's room has toys strewn from one end to the other, and it's that same child who comes floating to a parent on a rainy day and says, I'm bored. I'm bored. And he says they're bored because they have too many choices. They need direction. Myth number six, my kids do not watch too much TV. And he says every child watches too much TV if they watch TV. I tend to agree with him. I'm getting to a point where I have seen very little that I think small children ought to see on the television set. Uh, very little. Even the cartoons have slanted concepts now that present ideologies and philosophies that the Word of God certainly would not condone. And even if they pick a character, they throw a character in every once in a while, and this character is a smart mouse somebody. He doesn't have anything kind and gracious. No wonder our kids are turning out with angered lips and, and stubborn wills because that's what they see. They emulate. Rosemont says, probably time that we turned it off. If at most they see, he limits it a very small amount per day. Then he says, by the way, if you teach your children to lie for you, I mean, if you're on the phone or, or somebody's at the door and you don't want to see them and you say to your child, go tell them that I'm not at home. Go tell them that mom and dad are, are busy. Go, tell, go do, just go get rid of them. He says... 
If you teach them to lie for you, don't spank them when they lie to you. He's a wise man. If you're going to teach them to lie for you, then don't spank them when they lie to you. And he's absolutely right. He simply says in all this is saying that God told us the truth in the first place. We all knew it. We knew God told us the truth. Nobody ever doubted that. But somehow when a human being picks up on it and says it again, it somehow puts it in an everyday kind of language and we relate to it. Let me tell you this. In these years, as you walk around the property here and as I walk around the house at home, there's one thing that uh, takes my attention very noticeably. There's these uh, young birds that are hatching from their nest and they're getting up on their, you know, the sides of the nest and they're getting out. I mean, I've never, I don't think there's anything uglier than a young robin. Have you ever seen one with big eyebrows about three inches out from his eye, you know, and his little short bob tail? I mean, they look horrendously pathetic. But anyway, these little robins are sitting around everywhere. They've just hatched out. They're sitting up here. They're just waiting for their chance to move on and, and fly away and so forth. And many of them are falling out of their nest or falling from the trees where they were perching and, and, and they're doing a little earlier. They're finding out that it ain't what they thought it was. They'd seen mom and dad do this thing all day long, fly in, fly out, fly up, fly down, pick up something, eat it, and everything was hunky-dory. They got up there and fell out of the nest, and all of a sudden they can't get up in that tree again. Unless somebody like you and I who have a concern for them, pick them up and put them back up there where they were, and the next day they'll be right down again, and you'll pick them, put them back up, and they keep doing it. They just keep doing it until one day those wings get just long enough the next time they get off on the ground, they can fly back up. Let me tell you something. Those mother birds and father birds who've been feeding and caring for those young ones so long, invested their whole lives for these last few weeks and months in that. I'm sure there's one thing they want to be sure of when those birds leave nests. They have wings. And let me tell you something. Before your children ever get out of that age where you have a, a real influence on them, you want to make sure that your children have wings. Spiritual wings. Make sure that they've been grounded in the Word of God enough to know, number one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's every child born into this world. We were born sinners, and we will die sinners unless somewhere along the journey we come to see ourselves as God sees us, and we repent of our sin and ask the Lord to come into our heart and be our Savior, even our children. And may I say to you that once they've gotten that salvation matter settled and they've gotten the spiritual wing then it's important that they be trained on how to make a living. And some folks have gotten so caught up in making a living and making money, they don't know how to live. Our responsibility as parents is to teach our children how to live. Making of a living will come naturally. I say to you, if you have children who maybe flew the nest before you wanted them to, then they're out there somewhere in the world today, and rather than being in a church service like this, they're maybe in a bar, or maybe they're sleeping off what they did at a bar last night. Maybe they're living in a life of sin. Let me tell you something. Not for one second would I urge or exhort you to love them any less. But I would urge you in expression of your love for them to pray for them fervently that God would bring them to himself. And then you say, well, I still have children at home, but they have not all come to know Christ to save you. Then I would urge you and exhort you that you intercede for your children every single day of your life. Do not miss a chance. Even when you pray at the new meal, if you can and you're praying alone, you beseech the Lord to save your children. Bring someone into their life to help share the gospel even in your absence. And may I say to you that and do all you can to make your home a little bit of heaven here on earth. Make it a godly place. Make it a wholesome place. And if you don't do a little bit to counteract what the world is doing to your home, then it won't be surprised in years to come that your home will be just as desecrated as our society has become.
our homes ought to be sacred places. And we can only keep them sacred as we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign there. I hope you'll make it a point. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of God that's been demonstrated in so many ways to so many of us here. Thank you for our children. Thank you that you've been so kind to entrust to us young people and gave us the assignments to rear them in your, your will. And Father, I pray that you'll bless all of our children and use them for your honor and your glory. Those who know you as Savior and Lord, may they grow in your grace and may they turn out to be great, fine, outstanding Christians to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for folks in this room who have some children who may not know the Lord today, they may be out in the world and wandering in the wilderness of sin, my Father, I pray that you'll encourage these parents to stay on their faces before you, interceding in their behalf. And Father, I pray you'll bring these children home again. Pray for parents today that we might look at and take an honest, open inventory of how we train our children, those of us who have children at home yet. Help us to make sure that we do it in your will, in directive of your word. And Father, I pray that for those of us who may have failed, that you'll forgive us and help us to begin again doing things right. Father, right now I pray for people in this room who may have never trusted you as Savior and Lord, whether they be children, parents here, or whether they be grown-up children, parents elsewhere, or some parents who may have even gone to be with thee. I pray right this moment that you may speak to hearts of people in this room, and if they've never had a time in their life where they saw themselves as you see them, lost and in sin, I pray that today as we give the invitation, they may walk down these aisles and express their desire to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Pray for Christians today that you may stir their hearts to have Christian homes. Christians in this room who may have allowed sin to get into their hearts. Husband-wife relationships that may have gotten a little ragged this week because of something getting in that shouldn't be there. Whatever it is, I pray that as we confront it this morning, we might deal with it in your will, confronting it together. Speak to husbands and wives, children, to all of us here this morning, parents, grandparents, and those of us who need to make a decision, may we make it today as you lead us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282, just as I am, we sing. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, first, if you do not know Christ as Savior, let me urge you to come. When you come down this aisle, I ask you one simple question, and that is, why are you coming? If you desire to know Jesus Christ as Savior, someone will take you into a room, a lady with a lady, and men with men, and show you from the Scriptures how you can know that you're a Christian. We'd be honored to help you. We'd delight in it. So let me urge you to come. Maybe your home is not all it ought to be this morning. And maybe God's spoken to your heart about that. And he wants you to come and maybe commit yourself, reestablish some conviction about it. If that's what he wants, then I hope you'll come this morning. Meet the Lord here at the front. If I can help you, I'd be glad to. If not, just you and your spouse pray. Do what's right. Whatever your need is, the Lord is willing and waiting and ready to meet that need. As we sing, you come together. Just as